This is Circulating Ideas. I'm Steve Thomas. My guests today are the 2019 candidates for American Library Association President, Julius Jefferson and Lance Werner. Ballots go out on the week of March 11th, so if you're an ALA member, get out there and vote. Circulating Ideas is brought to you with support from Metrics and from listeners just like you. Find out how you can help support the show by going to circulatingideas.com slash support or patreon.com slash circideas. With library budgets constantly shrinking, it's getting harder and harder to provide the resources your library patrons want and need. That's why the folks at Mometrics Test Preparation created the Mometrics eLibrary. Through their eLibrary portal, Mometrics offers study guides and practice questions for over 1,800 different exams covering college entrance, graduate school, nursing, medical, teacher certification, civil service, I'm counting this on my fingers, I'm running out of fingers, and many other careers and fields of study. All fully customizable and at a fraction of the cost of printed books. It's like having an entire library of test prep materials all at your fingertips. So, save space, save paper, and save money with Mometrics eLibrary. To get a free demo and 10% off your first purchase, visit goelibrary.com and let them know you came from Circulating Ideas by using the promo code PODCAST. That's goelibrary.com, promo code PODCAST. Julius Jefferson, welcome to Circulating Ideas. Thank you for having me, Steve. So, um, of course, you are on this episode because you are running for president of the American Library Association, and I wanted to get started by wondering how you got into libraries in the first place, and then kind of what keeps you excited being a librarian today. Okay. So um, I began uh, working in libraries uh, at the age of 16 as a work-study student at the Library of Congress and the Congressional Research Service uh, and the Government Division. And I worked in that job through my senior year of high school. Um, I left, uh, I graduated high school, and I worked over the summer, and I believed that I would never, ever set foot working in a library again. Um, However, I actually returned to work at the Library of Congress as a deck attendant uh, during my college days. I kind of found out that I um, became addicted to reading, and, and I loved being around all the books. I was also inspired by the work of the historian and writer uh, and bibliophile Arthur Schoenberg, who spent much of his life collecting literature and art and other material relating to African history. Um, the New York Public Library purchased his vast collection of work and named the Harlem branch of the New York Public Library after him. It's called the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. So I wanted to be a bibliophile, and I became a librarian. And so the second part of your question is, what am I most, uh, what keeps me excited about the profession today? So I am most excited about the possibilities and the impact librarians and library workers can have on our communities and my role in shaping, leading, and mentoring the next generation. I mean, the possibilities are endless, and I feel like I want to be a part of the next generation of librarians and library workers. And you've already done a lot of that as part of your – you've been on the ALA Council, Executive Council, lots of other committees and um, divisions of ALA. So why do you now want to be ALA president to help assist with that, which, what you are just talking about of how, moving people forward? So first, I believe in the power of ALA 
to make an impact on libraries, librarians, and library workers in the communities we serve. But more importantly, I prepared myself through active participation, as you kind of mentioned a couple of things, I'll go in depth, to lead the members of ALA, and I've devoted 15 years working and getting to know dedicated and passionate ALA members and the role they have in improving library service to our communities. So I've collaborated with our members in all areas of our strategic planning um, by serving in elected and appointed roles. I've served on, as you mentioned, ALA committees, and such as the ALA Diversity Committee, the Budget Analysis Review Committee, uh, the Intellectual Freedom Committee, and currently I'm chairing the Chapter Relations Committee. Um, I was elected and continue to serve on, on the council, which is our governing body for the past eight years, and I was elected by the council to serve on the ALA Executive Board for three years. So my active participation also includes working with affiliates, like serving on the Freedom to Read Foundation Board, where I was elected to serve for four years and three as president. I've also been involved and value the work of our ethnic caucuses. So I served on the Black Caucus of the American Library Association's uh, e-board for two years and continue to be a champion for the JCLC. I've also developed relationships at the local level serving as chapter president for the District of Columbia Library Association. So through these experiences, I clearly understand the values and strategic directions and organizational culture of the American Library Association. And for these reasons, I want to serve now as ALA president. And in, in, your, in your regular job, your everyday job, uh, how do you encourage the people you work with and the people you manage, how do you encourage them to succeed, and how do you think those skills would transfer over to helping to improve the ALA, its staff, and its members? So that's a very good question. And I want to first say that when, when you say ALA, I think of the members. So ALA consists of our, our members, uh, organizational members, but more specifically our individual members. Um, I want to say that I have the privilege of serving the American people at the Library of Congress Congressional Research Service, where my role is to lead research librarians who provide information and information analysis to members of Congress, their committees, and their staff. So I'm passionate about developing the careers of my staff and strongly believe in the value of coaching, active participation in library associations like the American Library Association, and continuous learning. So when I was an executive board member, um, I was an advocate for ALA staff and firmly believe that our members receive the best member experience when we have a healthy organizational culture for, for ALA staff. Um, I'll just note that I'm very familiar with the American Library staff because my mother um, worked for the, Ameri the uh, American Library Association's Washington office for 25 years. Okay. So I would continue the conversation about the need to focus on ALA staff uh, development and training. It's vital to the health of our, our association and our member experience. But more importantly, our members succeed when they actively participate in ALA. So my vision is to make ALA a more inclusive association where all members feel welcome to take advantage of the leadership and professional development opportunities ALA has to offer. So I feel that if we work together, um, our members will have 
a, a greater experience um, and it's sort of the way I feel working with my, my own staff uh, where I work, that they have a, a better work experience by me working with them, coaching them, mentoring them, and providing access so they can continue to develop and grow. And one of the ALA staff that you'll end up working with, um, ALA has not had a permanent executive director for a couple of years um, as they do a search, and um, Mary Gigas has stepped in um, to fill that role for a few years while the role, uh, the search continues. But assuming the search goes well and assuming you're elected, that person, that new person would be in place during your tenure. So what characteristics would you be looking for in an executive director that you think would be a successful, make a successful candidate? And what challenges do you see the executive director um, facing as they guide the direction into the future? Because obviously the president and executive director work together, but it's, they cover different things. But mm-hmm. No, that's a very good question. So I was a member of the ALA executive board to ask Mary Geekus to continue uh, to serve as the executive director until the new executive director uh, would be selected, uh, which should be uh, in the fall of 2019, and then introduced to the membership in mid-winter 2020. So uh, as board members, I can say I was personally thankful that she agreed to serve um, through this time of transition. Um, I was also on the first executive director search committee where uh, a candidate was not identified. So I know how imperative it is to choose the right person to lead the day-to-day operations. That's what the executive director does of our association. So I believe that the next executive director should have the experience to certainly experience or knowledge or abilities um, to be familiar with all types of libraries, um, the ability to lead through change because we are in a, in a time of, of these streams of change within our association, um, a commitment to equity, diversity, and inclusion. Uh, I believe that um, this individual should have some type of proven leadership and experience of leading a volunteer nonprofit organization with the focus on serving the members, and I think that's vital. Um, I believe that this person should have the ability to use innovative methods to generate streams of revenue. And I believe most importantly, um, because I am standing as a candidate to go back on the board, that this person should have the ability to effectively work with the board. So the major challenge I believe this person will, will have to deal with in guiding the association will be um, leading, the, leading our association through these streams of change, which will not be uh, an easy task at all, but I believe that's going to be the major challenge. Okay. And you talked a little bit earlier about um, you've been on some diversity committees. You talked about inclusion in the profession, um, and that's what ALA definitely considers equity, diversity, inclusion to be really core values of the association, and I think um, almost every librarian would consider that as part of the profession. But there's we won't talk about any specific instances, but there have been some instances at Midwinter and previous conferences where people have not always, people of color in particular, have not always found the association or the field itself to be a welcoming environment. Um, and um, the, uh, the 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 executive board and President Garcia Fibo have come out with some plans like racial equity training to come out over the next few years. Um, but other than things like that, what other actions would you take to address this issue? And how can we make conferences and just the profession as a whole, I guess, safe for all attendees? Yeah, those are very good questions um, and very timely. So first, the lack of inclusion is a major issue 
that has plagued our country and our institutions for centuries. So librarianship and ALA certainly is not excluded. Um, librarians, library workers, library administrators, and AL leaders must aggressively address these issues of exclusion and structural bias in our workplaces and in our associations. So we must shift the organizational culture to one where inclusion is the norm and exclusion is not tolerated. So each ALA member, each member of our association must be an advocate and a champion for staff of color. And ALA leaders, that would be the president, the executive board, the council, the, the leaders on, on our divisions and, and our roundtables and in our chapters, and our library administrators must hold staff accountable who do not demonstrate the values of inclusion. So as president, I plan to build on a workshop I organized at the JCLC 2018. It was called Walking the Tightrope, Retaining Librarians, Librarians of Color. So in this workshop, um, we had participants divide themselves into groups, and we discussed various challenges of being a librarian of color in our workplaces. So um, the stories and strategies that came out of, out of these, this, this workshop and the conversations were enlightening and I think very helpful. So I would like to make uh, this type of workshop available at every conference uh, as a professional development session. I don't think we have enough specific professional development to kind of uh, build this type of inclusiveness at conference. I want to make this something that happens at every conference. Uh, Non-people of color who participate will be able to hear the adverse effects of exclusion on people of color um, and our institutions and the communities that we serve. So. Um, I certainly have that vision and want to move forward in that direction. Um, so in terms of our conference, um, so currently we, we have a statement of appropriate conduct. Uh, and I believe that this is certainly not enough. So we have a statement. It's not enough because we, we have incidences. I've been affected um, by harassment at, at conferences, and many of my colleagues have as well. So we need again, to have a standing workshop at conference to discuss what is appropriate conduct and how appropriate conduct uh, affects not just the targets of such conduct, but those who witness the conduct as well, because I think we're all affected, even if it's not um, something that you're a target of. So um, I, I believe that we need to hold those who do not follow this uh, appropriate conduct accountable for their actions. So I think that we need to take a stronger stance on, on how we treat each other at our conferences. Yeah, it, it, it reminds me of some. I did some just internet safety training for children at my branch, just as a as a um, um, just a program. But in that training, part of it is in a bullying kind of situation, which is not the same thing we're talking about here necessarily. But there's the bully, there's the victim, and then there's the bystanders. So, like you said, the people who just stand by and kind of watch and don't help, that's an issue that needs to be um, addressed as well. And I'm glad you brought that up to you of bystanders need to understand what's going on as well and not just um, get kind of frozen <laughs> with uh, fear of how, of how to proceed. Absolutely. I mean, we're all affected here. We're all affected and we, we all need to be in the room to see how we can move forward. If it does happen, how we should react. Yes, you're, you're exactly correct. And, and I would say that it is similar because a lot of this behavior is bullying behavior. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. When you're the when you're the the victim, it is you feel bullied. I mean, you feel like you feel like someone uh, believes that they have the right to invade your personal space, or someone believes they have the right to say something that it could be perceived as offensive. Um, so it is a form of bullying overall, I think. Um, and related to that question, and you and some of what you're talking about would address this, but um, how would you specifically address the reti- issue of retention, especially with people new in the field who might experience workplaces that are not equitable and exclusive? Um, a lot of what you talked about will help with the profession, but how do we push that out to workplaces um, yeah. and, and, and institutions and just recruiting and retaining people of color and other mar- marginalized groups as well? Yeah, no, I, a very good question. So so um, two of our four strategic directions are equity, diversity, inclusion, and leadership and professional development. So it's vital that ALA provide leadership and discourse that will shift the paradigm for equity and inclusiveness in our workplaces. Um, personally, I've shared the equity, diversity, equity, diversity, and inclusion discussions and best practice that I have participated in at ALA as a member of committees on diversity and as a member of ethnic caucuses and council on the board with my workplace, you know, and I have participated on um, uh, diversity committees at my workplace, place, thereby advancing the conversation. I think we must move the discourse beyond annual and midwinter conference to our respective organizations to include the best thinking about uh, EDI uh, and inclusiveness of our ALA members. So. Overall, what I'm saying is that if we are going to begin to um, move the paradigm of equity, diversity, inclusion in our workplaces, we must take this conversation from ALA, these values that we say we hold dear to us as a part of our core values and strategic directions, and move that conversation, push that conversation in our respective places of work. And one more kind of follow-up question that's sort of around inclusion as well is um, talking about virtual access to conferences because a lot of times people um, either having disabilities that preclude them from participating or just can't afford the travel costs of going to conferences. Um, How can um, we move forward with the profession to make virtual participation in meetings and committees and even the content of conference sessions? How can we make that more available to members? So that's a good question, and I think this question really uh, revolves around investing in our association, um, which really is speaking to the heart of your question. So much of our investment involves um, increasing our streams of revenue and how, and, and, and certainly revolves around the sale of ALA headquarters. So if we're going to be a modern association, and that's one of my themes, uh, making ALA a modern association, we must provide greater access for participation, including virtual access. Um, then we must invest in our IT infrastructure. This is critical. Um, so this this is for for people that have disabilities, for people who can't attend conferences, um, for people who are who serve on committees that have a responsibility to meet with committees, but they can't meet face to face. You know, virtual participation before and during conference can happen with a robust uh, IT platform, um, and this includes all areas of participation in, in, at ALA. So I think that um, when we think about increasing virtual access, we have to think about you know, developing and building a, a robust IT infrastructure. Also about conferences, uh, a lot of times 
people have talked about midwinter, about whether it's necessary, things like that. I know there are some working groups, I think, working on that within ALA. But um, what do you see as the future of midwinter, especially because there there certainly are things that need to get done there. There's meetings that need to be, get done. Of course, like some of that could be addressed with virtual meetings like you talked about. But there are things like the Youth Media Awards that are really valuable and people like that kind of in-person sort of like the Oscars for kids' books, feeling like being in the room at the same time and getting to cheer and get excited. So how do we how do we kind of balance those things out and make it um, worth continuing to do the conference? Or just generally, I guess, what are your feelings about the Midwinter Conference in the future? Yeah, so so there's been much discussion about the sustainability of Midwinter as it is as it exists now. Um, I believe we will have a midwinter meeting but with a format that, we're, that will reflect the current needs of our association and members. Um, we need to continue to have robust discussions where all voices and perspectives are heard. Um, I certainly don't have the answer to how midwinter will look uh, in 2021, but I will say that um, I believe it's going to have to be a mix of a lot of things, and, and we should have to take the best of what we do at midwinter. Um, and then tailor that to the to the, the specific needs of, of our members. So um, I'm looking forward to being a part of that conversation uh, and being a part on the board as we move through this transition as well. Um, so what do you see? We, we've talked about the challenges of the organization and how it's going to move forward, but what do you see as just kind of stepping back and seeing for the, the bigger picture of what are the ch- big challenges that libraries just in general face in the coming years? And that's broad scope of libraries, public, academic, school, um, and how would you as ALA president lead the profession to help address those issues? So I think the biggest challenge for libraries will be maintaining adequate funding and providing services for the communities that we serve, making sure that um, we have a diverse workforce that reflects the communities that we serve. So as president, I want to focus on advocacy advocacy programs that utilize the expertise of our ALA chapters to communicate and collaborate on building a network of key stakeholders on the local level and connect us and help us champion library issues. So I also want to build, and and as I stated earlier, I want to focus on trying to build this culture of inclusion in ALA that will have an impact on our library workforce uh, by, again, having these series of workshops um, that addresses these issues. So uh, the, the the two challenges for me are um, adequate funding and certainly um, building this diverse workforce. Okay. And um, kind of the last question, and you can kind of take it however broadly you want. Why are libraries still important in the 21st century? I think we, I think we can stipulate you running for ALA president, you believe they are important. <laughs> so why is that? Why, why are they still important? And how do, and maybe even if you can go into how do we kind of convince other people of that? Because we already know that. So why are they still important? What's the pitch to the general public? So libraries have and will continue to be important in the 21st century and beyond. Um, libraries are the physical spaces, Steve. They represent the cornerstones of our democracy and are the repositories of our culture. But the library would just be a building with print and digital information without librarians and library workers who are the keys to providing access to information and satisfies our intellectual curiosity. So for me, um, it's not just about 
the physical spaces, but it's about the individuals that provide service in that physical spaces. Um, so the librarians help us organize, navigate, and make available information that impacts our communities and our individual lives. So where would any of us be without school librarians and without librarians who provide services to children or public and academic librarians, uh, librarians who serve the underrepresented populations? Um, like tribal librarians and, and people with disabilities. So librarians, li libraries, librarians, library workers are essential in any century, as far as I'm concerned, and they always will be. Um, so that's, that's my short pitch. <laughs> All right. Well, before we wrap up, do you have any kind of last words you want to have for the listeners? And hopefully a lot of the listeners are ALA members and can vote. Um, and then we, will, of course, we will encourage them to vote. But um, do you have any kind of last words you'd like to impart on people? Yeah, I, I want to say that this is a we're at a very critical period in the history of our association and even more our country. I think that it is important that we take an active role in carefully selecting who's going to lead our association um, during this period of, of transition and change. Uh, I certainly believe that I prefer myself uh, to, to lead our members, um, to be familiar with um, our organizational culture and where we say as an association we want to be in the future. Um, I can tell you that I want to make ALA the type of organization that I wanted it to be when I joined, one that is inclusive, one that, that all members have an opportunity to succeed, one where we can take advantage of the vast knowledge of our colleagues in the profession. Um, that's what I'm going to work towards uh, if I'm elected as ALA president. And if people want to uh, follow up and find out more about you or your campaign, uh, where can they go to do that, or how, how can they get in touch with you or your campaign? They can they can go to Jefferson for ALA President. That's Jefferson F O R ALA President. And that's my website. Um, <clears throat> I, I have a blog there, and um, certainly I, I have um, a way that they can they can email me. Uh, from the website as well. I certainly want to hear the thoughts of, of all our, of our ALA members, thoughts and ideas and feedback on, on my platform and, and what I'm, how I think we should move forward in the future. Okay. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today and helping to inform the uh, members about your work and what you um, want to work toward if you become elected. Uh, so good luck in the election. Thanks, Steve, and, and I really appreciate you inviting me. And, uh, and again, uh, thank you and vote. <laughs> All right, thank you. Bye. Lance, welcome to the Circulating Ideas podcast. Ah, well, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to spend this time with you here today, and uh, I look forward to our conversation. So um, what got you into libraries in the first place? You're running for ALA president now, but what, what was it that got you excited about libraries way back when, and what makes you stay excited about the profession today? Well, I mean, I got to tell you, honestly, I, I didn't come to libraries, I think, through the standard channels. Um, it wasn't something that I even considered as a profession when I was really young. Um, and I should have because, you know, my mom's a school librarian or was a school librarian and um, actually ended up getting taken out of the school library late in her career and put into the classroom because Michigan, unfortunately, made some bad decisions around doing that. 
Um, we can talk more about that in a while. But so I started my whole library career um, when I was going to law school. Um, I had sometimes up to four part-time jobs. So one of the constant jobs that I had was working in the library. I went there because I could do my homework while I went to work, you know, something profound and deep. But I'll tell you what, I, uh, I actually went to law school because I wanted to work for the FBI when I, was, when I was younger, and I don't know where that came from, and that's probably a whole separate conversation. But anyway, so halfway through law school, um, I met my wife, and my wife had a young daughter, and so I ended up getting married when I was in law school, and uh, I decided that working for the FBI maybe wasn't such a great career for a guy with a new family, and I, uh, I decided to switch gears, and, and so I, you know, by this time, I, I started working in a law library as a circulation desk attendant. And I did almost every job that there was to do. I mean, I worked my way up. I ended up working there a grand total of 11 years. Um, and so I decided, you know, talking with my mom and talking with the people that I was working with at the MSU Law Library, it's called the Schaefer Law Library now, um, to, I decided to roll in, into library school while, while I was in law school. So I shed some of my other part-time jobs, kept my job in the library, went to law school, at Michigan State University and went to library school at Wayne and I worked in the library. And I also had one other job in addition to that because I, you know, for a better part of my life, I've worked at least two jobs and sometimes more. Anyway, um, so my whole plan at that time was to graduate law school, pass the bar, and, you know, get my library degree and then become an academic librarian. Because I you know, I, I'd worked my way up into a managerial role, and it was kind of fun being in law school, having my own office in the library, um, because I was a manager in the library. I was the circ manager at the law library. And anyway, so I graduated law school, passed the bar. I took a semester off of library school to study it for the bar and, and got it through one go, thank, thank God. And then um, a year later, about, I graduated library school. And by that, and when I graduated library school, I became a reference librarian at Schaefer Law there at MS, on the MSU campus. And uh, I decided, you know, I kind of, I really enjoyed what I was doing, but I started feeling like I wanted to have new challenges. I like, I like doing research a lot. I always have. Um, but I wanted, I wanted to try, try something else. And so at that time, when I, after I graduated, um, at that time there was a vacancy at the Library of Michigan for a library law specialist. And the library law specialist, the job was to essentially um, talk to all of Michigan's public libraries about legal issues that they were having to do training and to serve in a variety of capacities. So I applied for that job, and I got that job. And I kept my job as reference librarian at the Schaefer Law Library. I worked during the weekends, and I worked for the state during the week. And I, um, yeah, I was doing both. And I was I was going around the state of Michigan, helping public libraries for legal issues. At that time, I worked with uh, Attorney General on some amicus briefs um, around library-related activities. Did a lot of um, contractual work, memorandums of understanding. I became the Deputy Chief Appeals Officer for the State Historic Preservation Review Board and was an administrative law judge. I worked in the law library at the Library of Michigan, um, answering legal questions, doing legal reference there. Um, I just got to wear a lot of different hats. I managed to draft two different bills um, that became later became law and 
spent a lot of time working the legislature around library related, you know, legal activities and things that were going on there. So it was during that time, during that five-year window that I, you know, working with all these public libraries that I really got a really deep understanding of the mission of public libraries and, and, and really kind of, kind of profoundly understood the impact they were having on the public. And I've always been kind of, you know, an altruistic person, you know, I live my life in a way that I figure we all only get one shot and I want to spend my shot making the world a better place than, than what it was when I found it. And um, so I, I, you know, a job position became available at the Capital Area District Library for a director. And I've always been in leadership roles. Uh, I worked my way up into leadership roles my entire life in almost every different type of job that I've had. And um, so I was interested in that. And so I applied for the directorship of the Capital Area District Library and became director there. And then from there, I came here to the Kent District Library. And I plan on staying at the Kent District Library for the rest of my career. Um, love it here. I'm a sixth-generation Michigander. My kids are the seventh. Um, love Michigan and just feel, you know, just completely blessed to um, be here and work in a capacity where I'm spending my life helping people. And I really feel like a life spent helping others is a life well spent. There's nothing I would rather spend my time on. Um, I think it's more valuable than money or anything to have this opportunity to really make a profound impact on the world. And so that kind of drives everything that I do. And um, I'm very passionate about it. Well, speaking of making an impact, um, obviously being ALA president would help make be an, make, make an impact. Um, why do you want to be ALA, ALA president? What do you see that you could bring to the position? Well, I mean, a lot, actually. I, I've been, the, I was the president of the Michigan Library Association, and I was chair of a legislative committee. But in my first meeting as president of the Michigan Library Association, the executive director told me she was leaving. And um, and then about two weeks after that, she called me and told me that the venue where we were having our annual conference was going out of business. So in the first three months of my tenure as president, we hired a new director, Gail Madziar, who's the current director of the Michigan Library Association, who's retiring. Um, and I'm sad to, sad to see her go. And we rescheduled uh, the conference to the Cobo, uh, Cobo Hall in Detroit, which I was thrilled about. I had the Loud Librarians Conference, and I love it that it was in Detroit because I'm from that area originally. But um, I spent a long time with Gail um, in a variety of ways, and, you know, she really helped me be better at my job, and I helped her be better at hers. And I provided emotional, you know, support, and, you know, I have a really – thick legal background. I was able to leverage that. I've, I've spent a lot of time advocating for things. I've been an administrative law judge. I've written laws. I've written administrative rules. I'm a former registered lobbyist. I was able to leverage all of that to help her become, you know, arguably the most successful director in MLA's history. And she would accomplish more legislatively than any of her peers did. In fact, I think if we were to take her, her peers, the people um, before her, her predecessors, take their legislative accomplishments and put them in a pile versus her pile, her pile would be much higher. Now, I'm not taking credit for all that, but I, I did help her get there. I was, you know, an important part of all, a lot of those conversations. I testified in the House, and I testified in the Senate, 
um, I've done the hard work, but I was able to kind of leverage that. And so with ALA, um, you know, it's not lost on me that ALA is higher in the process of trying to get itself together to hire a new director. And I have firsthand experience with this. It's not abstract to me. It's not an academic exercise. It's something that I've done. And I know what it takes after you hire a new director to help that person be successful. I'm a servant leader, so I know that the most important job of a new president would be to help ensure that the new director is wildly successful, that the new director has the tools that that she or he needs to be successful and that the barriers are knocked down and that kind of a path is, is made for that person to be successful. At the same time, you know, it's not lost on me either. You know, I'm part of the ALA Policy Corps. That you know, advocacy is extremely important, and um, I actually have a lot of experience with that. And, and so much so that I actually travel around the country and train um, libraries on how to be effective advocates. And I think I could bring that to bear as well. I really strongly believe that you know, first of all, everybody in the whole world that's self-aware is an expert advocate. You've been advocating your entire life since you became self-aware. Your pets are advocates. Everybody you know is an advocate. We all have that skill set. So really the kind of the, the, the trick is is to talk to people, you know, and get them aware of that, but also make them aware that really effective advocacy is nothing more than having relationships with people. And, you know, helping people kind of go through that process. And there's there's a very formulaic approach to establishing relationships. And, you know, a large part of that's taking your own partisan bias out of it. And, you know, remembering you represent an organization that doesn't really have a brand, you know, and we don't favor anybody over anybody. And so when you're talking in that role, that you're talking on behalf of the library and you're not talking on behalf of yourself. So anyway, I've done a lot of training around that. I could bring that to bear. Um, and I think that's hugely important. Plus, I really, um, I've been doing some keynotes around the country, talking about kindness, love, and empathy. I, I truly believe that that's the way forward. I think a lot of the issues that we deal with as a society now are due to a complete lack of empathy. And I really feel like it's important to, you know, highlight the fact that these things are important and help people become more aware of their importance and really to get around to understanding that the mushy stuff matters and matters more than you think. And finally, I strongly feel that all of us need to get around to understanding that comfort is our enemy, that that we, we do not have the luxury of being comfortable because comfort is a kissing cousin of complacency. And if you get comfortable the goals that you've set for yourself, the goals that you've set for this profession are getting further and further away because, frankly, you become complacent. So I, I really want to push people to become comfortable with being uncomfortable and, and strive to be uncomfortable and to push themselves every day for their own good, but for the good of this profession because it's my intent that this profession is around for another 3,000 years at least. You know, And I think that if we all get comfortable and sit on our hands, then – we shouldn't expect much because, the, you know, the lowest level of behavior that we accept is the highest level of behavior that we can accept both of ourselves and of this entire profession and of the world. And so it's important for us all to drive hard every day. And so it's my intent as director uh, or as, as president of the American Library Association that I would be a servant leader that rather than standing on the top of the pyramid, I would stand on the bottom and push everybody up to ensure that everybody is wildly successful, to ensure that people are getting return on investment for their membership, that members are being heard and reacted to, that the, that the director is, is wildly successful, that the organization is operating efficiently in a way 
that is, is nimble and timely and that we are doing everything we can do to push equity, diversity, and inclusion, that we're doing everything we can do to make everybody a champion of advocacy and comfortable doing it, and not just people that work in libraries. I'm talking about trustees. I'm talking about friends. I'm talking about people that care about libraries or care about the concept of libraries. We need everybody to raise their voice. You know, frankly, my friend, let me tell you this. There are more people in this country that care about libraries than care about guns. The NRA's got a huge, powerful lobby. There's no reason. Libraries represent almost 7 billion people on this planet. There's no reason we can't get ourselves together, raise our voice, and make a profound change in this world. And so that is why I'm interested in being the president of the American Library Association. Well, you, you talked about um, the idea of, of needing to feel discomfort sometimes. You have to kind of go through – you have to push through and you have to do these things. And one of the things that I think not just the association but society in general has to grapple with is ideas around race. And ALA does consider itself to be – have core values of equality, um, equity, diversity, inclusion. And, of course, I think most of us in the profession also feel that way. But there, yes. there have been a lot of instances, especially recently, of people of color not always finding the association or the profession as a whole to be welcoming. Um, but and, and that's starting to get addressed, especially by President Garcia Fibo and the current executive board. But um, other than the kind of the race equity training that she's talking about um, enacting, what can we do as an association to make conferences feel more safe for all attendees and to kind of make the profession maybe as a whole more um, welcoming to people of color and even other marginalized groups? You know, frankly, I, I think that race is a hugely important thing. But when we talk about equity and diversity and inclusion, I think that it's so much deeper than that. I think a lot of the conversations that I've heard around this topic have been very superficial. I think too many times we look at each other and make an assumption based on how somebody looks, but you don't see who they are. And I think that we need to also incorporate empathy and we need to recognize that we need to be more granular than just race. I mean, there's a lot of things. Listen, I'm, I, I, there's things that have happened to me. I mean, that, that are unique experiences to me that others share, but they're not things that you would necessarily know about me just by looking at me. So I think a couple of things that we need to do are to, you know, hold ourselves to even higher standard and, and to like, really get granular with it and really kind of drill down on these issues. I also think that it's extremely important to, um, like, you know, I think it's a cop out to say, well, we don't, we can't find applicants. We can't find people. I mean, I think it's a cop out to say that and not do anything about it. A lot of people, I hear a lot of people identifying issues, but I don't hear a lot of people trying to solve those issues, you know, in, in kind of like a real profound way. And not just within a library. I think that the library and, and, and the, 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 the association, I mean, we can really be change agents in this arena for you know, people outside of our industry. So I really think that we need to make a more concerted effort to reach out into communities, all communities, let them know that there's, you know, viable career options in a library for everybody. The library has a fundamental duty to transform lives, to meet people where they're at and provide them the resources on an individual, you know, in an individual way to help them achieve the goals that they've set out before them. I think that we need to have more civil discourse in the library that we need to train people on how to do that. I think that the association, I heard about the bullying incident or the alleged bullying incident. I wasn't there, and I'm sorry about that. I think it's horrible that happened. I think that we need to, anytime there's some issue, I think that we need to do investigations. Listen, 
I'm a CEO here at the Kent District Library of over 300 people. And if that issue would have happened here, we would have launched an investigation, you know, immediately. We wouldn't have had a committee hearing. If we wouldn't have all that stuff, we would have launched, launched an investigation. And we would have gotten to the bottom of it. And once we're at the bottom of it, we would have acted accordingly. You know, we would have we would have taken our steps to ensure that, you know, justice was done and, and that people learned from it. So I think that, you know, hopping on things immediately as they arise is really important. But doing it in an objective way, conducting a thorough investigation and making sure that we get the facts. You know, I'm a, I'm a judge, so I'm a big, big fan of, you know, let's – Let's get the facts, you know, let's do our interviews, let's do our due diligence, let's get to the bottom of it, and then let's take the next step after that. But I, mean, I really think the association needs to provide, um, a, you know, a, an even more robust toolkit. I think there needs to be more scholarships available. I think that we need to help, tr you know, provide tools to members on how they can address this issue in a more meaningful way and not be content with doing something that's superficial and then declaring victory. This is a journey, it is not a destination. And I think it's important that the association keeps that in mind as it goes forward. Well, and, and sort of related to that question and, and kind of pushing it outside the organ, the outside of the association itself, what, what do you think the ALA can do to make workplaces themselves feel more inclusive? Because I, I kind of heard that from some people as I was prepping kind of these interviews and I've heard kind of just in keeping in touch with the profession that there's a lot of people of color that don't feel like like they get into the profession and then they don't feel welcome so then they leave so how do we address retention issues with um issues like that i think what we need to do is talk to communities i think talking to somebody after they're hired and saying i mean i do think that's necessary and saying you know what can we do to make you know make this a great environment for you a safe environment is important but i also think we need to you know even go deeper than that and and kind of talk to people in different communities and say, what can we do? What can we do? You know, and please guide us. We're here to help you. What can we do to ensure that, you know, the work environment feels safe and familial and everybody feels welcomed and valued? And, I mean, what can we do? And I think it just comes down to, you know, taking the extra step of asking and then acting upon the information that's received is really, 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 really important. And I don't think it's something where you can just ask one group. I think that, you, you know, I think it's kind of a deep dive on it and really getting to it. It's really, you know, in design thinking, I mean, it, it's kind of doing, you know, the, the, the interviews and, you know, using, you know, empathetic listening and, and figuring out what, figuring out what's not happening that needs to happen. And then, and then figuring out, you know, what can be done to, you know, if, if extra steps need to be taken, then extra steps need to be taken. But you don't know to take those. You don't know what you don't know. You don't know to take those steps until you, you know, find out. And the way you find out is to to ask. And then when you're done asking, ask again, you know, and, and just kind of this continuous improvement process around ensuring that the workplace is what it needs to be. And I really do think, so for instance, at the Kent District Library, we have a number of different things going on. We have um, special internships available. We, we give, um, there is additional money available, compensation available for people that are multilingual. Um, we are convening a kind of a think group of different leaders of various, uh, you know, from various diverse backgrounds to help us improve what we're doing. We want to invite the Seattle Public Library here to the Kent District Library and invite all the state's libraries to come here 
to listen to presentations on equity, diversity, and inclusion. Um, we want to uh, continue to reach out to the communities and get constant input. We want to, we've talked to community leaders and talked to, to them about what can we do to modify your services to ensure that the needs of your community are being met. Um, and we're doing all these things. I mean, it's not all, I mean, there's more than that. There's just stuff from rattling off the top of my head. And it's still not enough. And it never will be enough. We've got to always keep pushing and kind of be constantly hungry around this thing and not let ourselves get complacent and not let ourselves slide backwards. You know, we need to continue to push forward. Again, as I said before, it is a journey. It is not a destination. You know, I, I acknowledge I am a white male, and I have benefited from, you know, white male privilege, and I'm not threatened by saying that. And I'll tell you that I acknowledge that, and I also acknowledge that it is my duty to ensure Everybody, every single person has the same opportunity as me, you know, and, and until that's, you know, that's it and that's done, my work isn't done, you know, and I don't anticipate that it'll ever be done. And so I want to spend my career, whether I win this thing or don't win this thing, making sure that happens. I want that to be part of my legacy, you know, I want that to be part of who we are, you know, and I want it to be something that goes beyond libraries. I want to be something that's part of society, especially now with all the garbage that's going on, you know, and the utter lack of empathy. I think that we all need to give it, you know, 110% and, and not give it anything less than that. It's a journey, you know, you think we have to be relentless around it. Right. Well, another issue sort of related to um, inclusion is kind of talking about um, virtual access to conferences, because a lot of times uh, people, it may be travel costs, it may be a disability that prevents uh -huh. somebody from participating. But what do you think ALA can do to increase virtual access, not only to just the content of the conferences themselves, but how people can virtually participate in meetings and committees? Because I hear a lot of people that want to get more involved, but they just can't commit to attending two conferences a year. I, I am 100% behind that. I think it's ridiculous we don't have, the ALA doesn't have more capacity to do that. It's not that hard. Listen, I mean, we have a conference room here that seats 150 people. I have WebEx, Zoom, Skype, whatever. I do, people don't even have to be part of TDL. You can come here and use our stuff. I mean, an ALA needs to make sure that it's identifying places where that can occur and working with providers such as the Kent District Library to help make that happen. Um, there needs to be way more virtual interaction going on. Um, it's not – this is another thing that kind of drives me wild. It's my perception of the, the association that the glaciers will melt before anything big is done because the decision-making process takes so long. But it, it's ridiculous to me that it takes as long as it takes in an age where, you know, we have virtual communications. You can communicate with anybody in the world at any time and do in your private life. But why aren't we doing it as, you know, an organization or an association? They should be. And they should be doing it yesterday even. I mean, it, it just needs to have already happened, and they need to jump on top of it. I don't see this being a big deal. I think it would be rather easy to make that happen. There just needs to be effort put into it. Okay. 
And, and then sort of related to that is talking about the future of the Midwinter Conference itself. I know there's, a, there's some working groups talking about whether it should continue into the future and if it does, how it needs to change. I know there's the people who want to get rid of it. The problem with that is there, there, there are things like the Youth Media Awards that people like having that. I've heard it described as the Oscars for kids books that people you know want to be there in person. and They want to see the people win the awards. They don't want to just watch a webinar announcing the Caldecott and the Newberry. And, but then there are other things like meetings that are, are helpful sometimes to have face-to-face. So what are your thoughts about the future of the Midwinter Conference? Well, again, I'm intensely pragmatic. And I also think that we also need to think about the vendors who subsidize um, a lot of the Midwinter Conference as well. And, you know, it works for them. They're our partners, you know, they're not, you know, something to be taken for granted. So I, I really do believe that, you know, the format needs to be examined. I think that it could be I think it can be tightened up some. I think that maybe on on certain years where you're talking about having multiple conferences, on certain years where we know we're having a PLA conference, is it worth having a midwinter and PLA and an annual conference? I don't know. I I think that award ceremonies can be rolled into an annual conference format. I don't think that, you know, there's anything – magical about having them at midwinter and and maybe I'm missing something. I don't profess to be any sort of expert on the timing of things at ALA, but I I would like to hear the rationale behind, you know, it can only occur, you know, in the, you know, when it occurs during midwinter. And I think that, you know, the face-to-face meetings are important, but listen, you know, you can meet these, you know, a committee can meet, a committee can meet 11 times a year virtually and face-to-face on the 12th time at an annual, you know, I mean, that could happen. That's, it doesn't have to be the way that it is. Again, I'm, I'm intensely pragmatic. I care about what works. And I think that, you know, especially, you know, with an eye toward maintaining, you know, being able to be, be nimble and kind of staying ahead of the curve and maintaining, you know, leadership in, in a time when there's such rapid change that the association needs to position itself to be more nimble and getting away from, you know, face-to-face and going more virtual is going to enable the association to be more nimble and to get business done at a faster pace so it's relevant. You know, we're able to decide on what's relevant today, today, rather than deciding one on what's relevant, you know, today, you know, six months from now when it's not relevant anymore. So in your job at Kent, how do you encourage your staff to succeed and how would you use those skills to improve the association, its staff, and its members? Okay. Well, I mean, I think to really enable people to succeed, like I said before, I'm a servant leader. So my goal, in my opinion, as a leader is to A, hire the very best people that I can and B, give them exactly what they need to be successful including, and this is something that's often overlooked, okay, emotional support is hugely, hugely, hugely important. I want everybody who works at KDL to feel like part of a family. And I know that if they're happy and feel like part of a family, then the people that are coming to the library will also feel like part of the family because they're happy, because they're exercising kindness, sympathy, and love. And that's where I come from with my leadership style. So certainly providing tools and resources to be successful. And then three is removing barriers. You know, bureaucracy can kill creativity in a second. I mean, it's it's important to remove barriers. So I think that barriers to you know, like communication barriers, decision-making barriers, you know, cutting through a lot of the baloney 
is going to make everybody feel more supportive. I mean, people get aggravated when they feel like they don't have a voice. And when I went to midwinter, I talked to especially a lot of new members. They had no idea even how to access, you know, what what the association had to offer. And they felt there were barriers. I, felt there, I talked to people that felt there were communication barriers, um, not from the top down, but from the bottom up. You know, the people at the top weren't hearing what they had to say, and they were getting frustrated about that. So removing barriers is really, really important. I also think that we need to recognize that the people that work at ALA, the association itself, I think there's 500 employees, those people are subject matter experts too. And I think that they need to be taken into consideration. You know, the Michigan Library Association is successful and has been successful in part because they have an, an incredible director. She has what she needs to be successful and we remove barriers. She steers the organization, you know, we, we weigh in, but she steers the organization and we trust her because we hired the right person and we give her what she needs. I think that, that that's important too. I think it's important to hire the right person to be director at ALA, to give them what they need, to remove barriers and to be supportive of, of the director and the staff that help us and then supportive of you know, our colleagues on the various you know, committees and round tables and boards. You know, that's what it's all about. And the, the president's duty is to listen with an empathetic ear to identify and to take action. You know, and I, I really do feel strongly about that. And I'll tell you what, I've been in that role before. And I'll tell you what, that's a hard role. And it takes a lot of time. But I think that it's worthwhile because I feel like ALA can be so much stronger than it is. It's strong, but there's so much that you know, we could do. Just think of who we represent. You know, it's, I think the sky's the limit. We'll talk about the, we'll take the positive side of this after this one, but what do you think um, the biggest challenges are that libraries are facing in the coming years? And how would you, um, as ALA president, help lead the profession to help address those challenges? Well, I mean, I still think libraries still deal with a lot of financial issues. And I think a lot of the financial issues that libraries deal with are, you know, due to the fact that, I don't think we've done a great job of explaining what libraries are all about these days. And, you know, frankly, and okay, I'm going to get a little political here, although I maintain that I am apolitical, I feel like librarianship, nursing, and teaching are three professions that have been traditionally women's professions. And because they've been women's professions, they are underpaid, okay? And they always seem to have the smallest spoon at, at the, you know, at the soup pot. And so I think that that's ridiculous. And I think by not saying that, I'm complicit in the problem. And I think that it's important to make sure that everybody knows that the library isn't just important. The library is the beating heart of the community, is worth supporting, and and is worth getting behind. And is an exciting, exciting place where you can transform your whole life. Who else can say that? Do you know a public library is the most dynamic form of vocal, of government that's ever existed? We can do anything and be anything. We're only bound by our own imaginations. You know, we let ourselves get here because we, the lowest level of behavior you accept is the highest level of behavior you can expect. And so if we let ourselves, you know, have the smallest spoon and continue to be undervalued, we will be and can expect no more than that. So my thought is, is enough. You know, we need to change the story. You know, we need to let people know who we are, you know. And so so funding's a big thing. I mean, obviously, um, <clears throat> advocacy is extremely, extremely important. Um, and having good advocacy skills around maintaining intellectual freedom, 
in around funding issues, you know, and tackling big issues like rural broadband. And, you know, there's there's a million of them extremely, extremely important. And libraries need to be well positioned to deal with that. And, um, and I also think finding the right people. I think that, you know, honestly, if I have my brothers, I want to make sure to work in public service. I think that kindness is a must. And I really feel like a really good public service employee um, is more like a bartender than anything else, a really good bartender, right? You know, you know who your clients are. You have a real relationship with them. You know, you engage them. They feel welcome. And everybody feels like kind of part of something, you know, and I think that's, that's really good. So we want to make sure we're hiring the right people. And I think it's extremely important. I, I do. I think having the right people in the right chairs is extremely, extremely important. To, to kind of expand on a couple of things you touched on there um, as they're kind of big, mostly wrap-up question, why are libraries still important in the 21st century? I don't think you have to necessarily convince the listeners of this podcast who probably already are either librarians or love libraries, but sort of like what's the pitch to the people who don't understand why libraries are still important? Well, it kind of goes back to what I said before. You know, I have, I talk to a lot of people in the community, um, you know, thought leaders, I mean, you know, billionaires, people like that, who think they know what they're, we're all about, okay? They, they think they know what we do. But when I start telling them that, listen, we're not just a repository for books, that we're on point for this third grade reading initiative, that we are feeding hungry kids in our communities that have a high percentage of free and reduced lunch and helping deal with summer food insecurity, that we are helping people upskill and reskill to be, you know, get into better careers, um, that, we're, that we're helping adults get high school diplomas, that we're, you know, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. They're shocked. They think, they always say to me, it's like, I had no idea. And, and that's right, because you know who else does, you know who else in the government and society does what libraries do? Nobody. Nobody does what we do. And nobody can do it better. Google will never, ever, ever replace libraries. And you know what else libraries do? Libraries bring kindness, empathy, and love into the world. Libraries make people feel like part of a community. Libraries are a place where people come to connect with other people. Libraries are about people. End of story. And that will never, ever not be extremely important. You know, we don't just give information out. We give out kindness, empathy, and love. And hopefully by doing that, we can start a fire that we can have kindness, empathy, and love be something that's everywhere in society, and we don't have to deal with all this garbage that's going on right now because there isn't enough empathy and kindness and love in the world. Nobody, nobody else does that. Well, I think that's probably a great thing to wrap up on, but I'll give you one more shot here of do you have some any final words that you'd like to um, give to the listeners or potential voters of in the ALA just about – who you are and how you want to help libraries. I, I'm interested in being the president because I believe in doing what's right and what's not, e what, not what's easy. And, and I want everybody to know that I think that if something's not working, we should change it. And if it is, you know, we can leave it be for now. But I think that we always need to be willing to be uncomfortable to ask ourselves tough questions and to do the hard work. And, you know, I think, challenge everybody to set high goals for yourself and for the profession and not to have any regrets around that and to pursue them relentlessly. And I think that while ALA is good, 
I think ALA can be better. And I think it's going to be better because we're going to make it better because we're not going to accept anything but that. And I want to say my presidency is going to be about change. And um, that's it. And I, I love this profession. I love everybody in it. And I don't even feel like I have work. I have a calling. All right. Well, if people want to hear more about you or your candidacy, where can they go to find out more about that? Uh, LanceWerner.com. Nice and simple. <laughs> yep. W-E-R-N-E-R. All right. Thank, thank you so much, Lance, for talking to me today and um, for giving all the listeners and potential voters and all the ALA members and people who are librarians who aren't ALA members just to hear more about what you're about and just general um, advocacy for libraries. You know, this profession is going to be what we make it. You know, and I say we make it great. All right. Thank you so much, Lance. Thank you. Take care. Yeah, have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Circulating Ideas is produced by Steve Thomas in the suburbs of Atlanta. Views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of my place or work or the place of work of guests. For past interviews, visit circulatingideas.com and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or your podcast app of choice. And help others find the show by leaving a rating or a review. You can follow the show on Twitter at CircIdeas or like the show's Facebook page. Music is by Pamela Klicka. Thanks for listening and keep circulating your ideas. Thanks again to Mometrics Test Preparation for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. To get 10% off your first purchase and a free demo, visit goelibrary.com and use that promo code podcast. That's goelibrary.com, promo code podcast.